Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. Today, I want to welcome you to the third message in this series entitled Welcome Home. This whole series was designed to kind of break this building in, break really us in as we move into this building. Our fear was we would get in here and we would let our guard down. We would feel like we've arrived and we would just circle the wagons and get comfortable. And that's not what Jesus has for us. And so we've uh, jumped into this series to kind of set the tone for us as we move forward in this building. So if you brought the Word of God, head over to Galatians chapter 5 with us this morning. Galatians chapter 5. Go to verse 1. If you need a Bible, those guys coming up and down the aisle will hand you one. It is our gift to you. You'll notice up here on the screen there's some page numbers. That's to the Bibles that they're passing out. So if you're new to church, new to this whole Jesus thing, grab one of those Bibles because it'll help you to find those passages a little bit quicker to become more familiar with the Word of God. I also want to remind you as we go through this message, if you have any questions, you can text them to the phone number up on the screen or tweet them with hashtag MVFColorado. If we have some questions come through today, we'll get back to you with an answer. Uh, now, with all that being said, we normally do a pastor Q&A up here today. I'm just going to let you know up front, my message is pretty long, and I'm trying to squeeze it in a short amount of time. And so if it sounds like I'm rushing through some of this, the honest truth is I am, all right? But it's important for us to dive into this today, and I think this helps us to discover a few things about ourselves that I think are very important. And so we're going to jump into it today. Uh, the, the way that I want to start off this morning is just by tacking on to what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks and tell you uh, kind of where we've come from and fill you in if you haven't been here. Uh, what we have learned is that religion is very powerful. Now, because religion is powerful, you have to be careful with it because it can also be very dangerous as well because religion can actually be motivated by superstition or fear many times. I think one of the reasons why uh, religion is so powerful is because it's anchored in our conscience. Uh, it, this is what we learned last week. We dove into this a little bit. We found out that our consciences actually uh, control or they drive our behaviors, and our consciences are connected to truth and sometimes error, depending on how you were raised, depending on uh, you know what kind of upbringing you had, what kind of church experience you had, what kind of religious experience you had. Your conscience might be rooted in truth or error, and you have to weed through those things. And one of the things that we said last week was that our consciences determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. And many of you know this to be true, because years ago there was something that you used to do that you uh, didn't have any guilt over. And maybe you came face to face with Jesus, you started to dive in, you started to reset your conscience according to his set of values, and then now that you have that, you can't do those things anymore because now you'll feel guilty if you do them because you know you're not supposed to do them. Uh, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you were raised a certain way and, and uh, you always felt guilty if you did certain things, and today where you're at, 
uh, you know that there's nothing to feel guilty about and you're okay with it now. You've reset some of the values that your conscience draws from and, and therefore it's made some major changes in your life. Uh, our consciences determine religious realities whether they reflect reality or not. Uh, now, I would say that this is true corporately as well. You can have this within a, a group of, of people, uh, church or country. If you want to put it this way, wouldn't you say that our national conscience has changed over the years? If you don't believe me, just look at somebody a little bit like one generation older than you and see if they're shaking their head or not. Uh, because there's things that we're doing today that they never thought they would ever see in their lifetime. But we're legalizing things today that they never thought they would ever see. The national conscience has changed over the years. Now, as we jump into what we're going to talk about today, let me just tell you, whether you were raised in the church or not, whether you have a, a Christian background or not, uh, our consciences, all of ours, whether you have church experience or not, have been shaped by some version of Christianity, uh, a mix of what Jesus taught and what we're calling the temple model. Uh, just by default, being raised in America, which has been influenced by Judeo-Christian values, you have something in your conscience that's influenced, that's been shaped by, by some form of version of Christianity. Now, this shapes the way that we see God, the way that we interact with God. It shapes uh, how we see sin. Uh, it shapes our morals. It shapes everything, our, our worldview and the way that we see the world around us and, and how we interact with it. And, and so our consciences are important, and it's important to identify what is shaping them. Because the truth is this, what controls your conscience controls your behavior. Our behaviors are driven by our conscience. And so it's important for us to reach back and figure out what has shaped our conscience. Now in this series, what we've been doing is we've been sifting through what Jesus taught in the Bible when he came and what he desired for his ecclesia, his church, his gathering to look like, how he wanted them to live and function. And we've been sifting through the difference between that and what we're calling the temple model and how the temple model has influenced what Jesus originally desired for his, his assembly, his, his people. Uh, so if you have not been here, let me just hit this real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the last few weeks we've talked about this thing called the temple model. And the temple model uh, looks something like this. And it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what time in history you look at. It doesn't matter what culture, Assyrian, Egyptian, uh, Roman. Uh, you, you could go to um, today in Middle East Africa. You could find some mud hut village somewhere, and you're going to see some form of the temple model play out, as well as just about any church that you walk into, any religion that you look into worldwide. The, the temple model looks like this. There's a sacred place, and it could be a place where somebody uh, stood on and made some statement. It could be a place where somebody died, something miraculous happened in that one spot, and it's become sacred. And they'll build monuments, they'll build temples in those spots and try to protect it. But there's a sacred place. And then in that sacred place, there's sacred texts. Uh, the text is an oracle, a prophecy, some type of writing that somebody made, and they deemed it as sacred, and they keep that sacred text in that sacred place. And then there are these sacred men, and these are the men, and by the way, it's almost always men, uh, that have the authority to read the sacred text in the sacred place and be able to dictate to the followers. And you can call the followers whatever you want. You can call them sincere. 
You could call them superstitious. Some of them might even be scared. But for whatever reason, they listen to those sacred men and their interpretation of the text because this dictates how that culture, that religion will operate. Um, what they do, what they don't do, what they deem as right, what they deem as wrong, what they'll eat, what they won't eat. I mean, even things down to, to you know, pork, right? And so this has a big, big influence on culture, on mankind, on society. And this temple model has played out in many areas, many places, at many different times. Now, I would say this. um, What we covered in the very first week is the foundation for this entire series. And if you weren't here, I need to share this with you. Because what we said in week number one was that the arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model. The end, like everything we just talked about, sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men. He did away with every bit of that when Jesus came. And the beginning of something entirely new, something entirely new, something how new? Entirely new. If you miss everything else, that's what you need to get out of this today. Because Jesus was not starting Temple 2.0. He wasn't continuing with Judaism with a little bit of Jesus tacked on the end of it. He was scrapping everything everything and starting something entirely new. He said that I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Like everything's done. I've completed it all. The prophecy, everything that you've heard about, everything that you read, it's fulfilled in me. And from this day forward, we're starting something completely new. You know what that meant? No more sacred places, no more sacred texts, no more sacred men. No more sacred places. And and actually, in uh, Paul's writings to to the church in Corinth, he writes this. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple? And he says, the temple for the Holy Spirit. Like the the temple that you used to go to in Jerusalem, you don't need that anymore. There are no more sacred places. God has made it to where you, that it's all about people and not places anymore. He, He went to the cross and died on the cross and that changed everything. Now, if you haven't heard this story, let me just tell you real quick. God created mankind, man and woman, and Adam and Eve sinned in the, in the original garden. That original sin broke the relationship between God and people. And Jesus came, he sends his only son to die on the cross to correct that. Now, up until that point, they would go to temples and they would worship. And, and actually, the one in Jerusalem had this, this inner room in the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And they had a, a thing in there called the, the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence was thought to dwell in that area. And they actually put a whole veil over it. Because if you weren't, if you weren't right, you couldn't walk in there. Otherwise, you would die. And so they had this big veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And it says that when Jesus went to the cross and he sacrificed his own life and he paid the penalty once and for all, he paid the price that you and I could not pay. When he breathed his last breath and when he said, it is finished and gave up his life, it says that the veil and the Holy of Holies ripped from the top to the bottom. This was symbolism that said God was no longer contained to an area. Because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, you and I can place our faith in Jesus Christ, declare him as Lord and Savior, and when that happens, we have a right relationship with God, and God can dwell with his people, and he plants his Holy Spirit within us. And this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that you're now the sacred place? You're the temple. It's not about places. It's about people. This is where we've gone, and almost as a big exclamation mark, A little bit later, in 70 A.D., 
the Roman Empire would march into Jerusalem and they would wipe it out and they would tear the temple down so it would never be built again. It's like God saying, look, you don't need that anymore. Stop looking toward that. We've started something entirely new. When Jesus came, he got rid of the old temple model and he started something entirely new. He actually initiated several things. The first thing that he initiated was a new covenant. He gathered up his disciples and he said, look, uh, I'm going to give my life. And, and he didn't tell them all this up front, but looking back on it now, we know what happened. In my blood, I'm going to create a new covenant. Not the old one, not the one that you have between God and the Jewish people, but we're doing away with that one and we're going to create a new covenant in my blood. Jesus also initiated not only a new covenant, but a new command. He set his disciples down and said, a new commandment I give you to love one another as I have loved you. And, and we know from a couple of weeks ago that this comes on the tail end of him getting down and washing the feet of his disciples to show them exactly how to love the people around them. Not only do we have a new command, but we also have a new movement. Jesus did away with the old ways, the, the old temple model, and he created a brand new ecclesia, a new gathering, a new assembly of people. This was a whole different thing than what had been done in the temples before. This was something that was free of four walls that could move within the world. It was supposed to go out, and actually Jesus allowed persecution to come in and push his people out so that they could go and spread this movement, spread this good news to the people around them. And, and what ended up happening was this movement took over, and for 300 years it ran. I mean, it went crazy. It caught fire. It was a movement where love replaced law-keeping. It was a movement where self-sacrifice actually replaced animal sacrifices. No longer did you have to go to the temple. This is, a, this is the great thing about being a Christian. Every morning when you get up, you just give your life to Christ again. Just, God, today I sacrifice my will, my desires for yours. And I, and I want to know, what can I do for you today? How do, how do you want to use me today? It's a self-sacrifice uh, instead of animal sacrifice. We don't have to do that anymore because of Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, I was talking to somebody this last week, and I told him, you know, the problem with living sacrifices is that we keep trying to crawl off the altar. I, I think it's a daily thing for us just to sacrifice ourselves to God. Uh, this was also a movement where the vertical, the relationship between us and God was actually going to be measured by the horizontal. How we loved one another showed how much we loved God himself. Uh, so much so that when Jesus was here, he was trying to teach his disciples this. And he said, look, if you're at the altar, if you go and you try to, you're going to make a sacrifice. If you're in the temple and you in that moment remember that there's something between you and a brother or you and a sister, that there's a brokenness in your relationship. He says this, he says, listen, God can wait. Like leave what you're doing. Just stop and go and fix this other thing with your brother or sister. The vertical... The relationship between us and God is measured by our relationship with one another, how we love one another. Um, after Jesus would leave, along uh, would come a guy by the name of Saul, uh, Saul of Tarsus. We, we covered him last week. Uh, we talked about how he showed up on the scene, and he was a, a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He knew the law forward and backwards. He had memorized the Torah. He knew how to obey all 600-plus laws, and he did it. He did it with such great fervor. 
He was such a religious man that when Jesus, this Jesus movement broke out, he took it upon himself to get rid of it, to annihilate this new thing that was going on. And, and with the approval of the temple, he went out and began to hunt down Christians and kill them because they weren't part of, of the Jewish faith. And he did this very effectively until he came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it changed everything for him. In a moment, in one meeting, he went from being a a Pharisee among Pharisees to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he began to teach about this new movement, this new Jesus movement that was going on. And he himself knew the dangers of mixing in the old temple model into this new thing. He knew better than anybody else that there's no way that you could mix these two things, that nothing good was going to come out of it. He knew that a little bit of the wrong thing was going to corrupt the whole thing, and he began to teach against it. And again, if you were here last week, you saw this, we covered it, but he, he said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, which is where you're at, right? Okay, this is what he says. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Like he did it, he did all this work, and don't go back to the old ways. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. Look, if you're going to be Jewish, be Jewish. All right, But if you're going to be Christian, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow the old law. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. Now listen to this, because this is the key. This is the whole point. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Some of your translations say the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's it. It's not about the law. It's not about following some rules. It's not about your attendance. It's about faith expressing itself in love. The way we treat one another And this message went on to explode all over Europe. Uh, People for hundreds of miles around, within weeks, were hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ. And for the next 300 years, the church exploded. The the apostles went out, they planted churches left and right. People were, were growing in their faith. They were bringing other people to the faith. The church grew like you wouldn't believe in those first 300 years because they had a set of rules Because they had a nice new building? No. Because they were living out what Jesus taught them, to love the world around them, to love people the way Jesus loved them. And they did this. It was amazing. If you go back to the the first century and you read any of the pagan writings about the Christian community, it's like their mind is just blown. Like, we don't get these people. They're weird. They love everyone. They take care of everyone. They're taking this love into other nations. Uh, They were actually going out, like, in the Roman Empire, if you had a a female baby, right, if you had a daughter, uh, that was of no value to you. If you had a son that had a defect, that was no value. So they had no value on human life. They would just toss those babies out. They didn't didn't keep them. And it was the Christian community that came by and scooped those kids up and raised them as their own. 
orphanage were, were breaking out. This is how those got started because Christians were loving on their community. They took care of the widows. They didn't care what na- nationality you were with. They didn't care what your background was. They loved you in that. And, and the church was absolutely exploding for 300 years. And I go back and I look at what was going on. And we talked about it so often when we were launching this church 13 years ago. We want to be an Acts church. We want to be an early Acts church. What does that look like? How do we do that? How do we make sure that the temple model doesn't influence everything that we do? How do we, how do we stay true to that early Acts church in those first 300, uh, 300 years when it was blowing up and it was reaching the world around them? How do we do that? And I have to tell you, when I look at the early Acts church and I look at what we call church today, not just here, but everywhere, globally, they don't look like each other. They look completely different. And my question is this, where did we go wrong? What happened? How did we get so far off track? How did, how did all this other stuff become part of the church? What happened? Now, I think in order to explain this, we have to go back to at least October 27th in the year 312. Now, I, I know some of you, you're not history buffs, okay? And I'm going to apologize to you in advance. But the reality is this. We got to go back that far to at least figure out what happened. To go back and answer this question, we have to do a, a history uh, lesson. Now, now, if you're not a history buff, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to try to make it as interesting as I can, okay? But I think it's important. If we're really going to figure out what God is calling us to do and what he wants us to look at like, we need to go back to the beginning. See, back in 312 on October 27th, uh, there was an emperor by the name of Constantine, and he was going to battle uh, against a guy by the name of Maxinius. And, and on the way to the battle, he looks up in the sky and he sees a cross. It's a cross shape. And, and some scholars and, and some you know, uh, people who wrote back then, they wrote down that he heard a voice. Others said that he dreamed, that he heard it in a dream. We're not sure exactly how he got the message, but in, in whatever case, he got this message that said, in this sign, conquer. And so Constantine, before his battle, goes in and he draws crosses. He has crosses drawn on the shields of all of his soldiers. He's fighting against this other guy who they're trying to figure out who's going to be the new emperor of the Roman Empire. And he walks into battle the next day on the 28th, and he's victorious. And he becomes the ruler of the Roman Empire after this battle. Now, obviously, with this, this vision and hearing in this sign conquer, he wants to know more about this, this sect of Christians. What is this all about? And so he begins to dive in and learn. And in the process, he himself becomes a Christian. He becomes a believer, and he's heralded as the hero of the Christian faith. But here's what happens. As, Christ, uh, as Constantine's faith would grow, he would actually make the cross as the symbol of this new holy Roman Empire. Now, any of you that know history, you know the problem with this statement is that it was more Roman and it was more empire than it was holy. Uh, a year after this battle, Constantine would actually legalize Christianity. Up until this point, if you were caught as a Christian, you could be killed. Now he legalizes it. He makes it mainstream. He starts to pour all kinds of money into this faith, this new Jesus movement that was going on. And he begins to incorporate it, really, because he elevates the Christian leaders to these different standards, these different levels, gives them different names. He begins to build churches. He builds monuments on areas where martyrs had died, like people of the faith had 
died, these men and women, he'd go and he'd buy the property and he'd erect a monument or put a temple on it. Are you starting to see some of the problem here? He, he actually goes even further. He, he takes crucifixion off the table. Like he makes it illegal for the Roman Empire to use crucifixion as punishment anymore. He begins to collect all the old Christian relics and starts to bring them in. The writings of the apostles and anything else that he could get his hands on. He, he makes it to where the churches that he's establishing in all these now new sacred places, he says that they're not taxable. See, it took a lot of tax to, to go to war, to expand the empire. But if you were part of the church, you didn't have to pay taxes. And so now it became very trendy for all these wealthy people to donate their lands and all to the church so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. Christianity, almost overnight, went from being the persecuted minority to be in the empowered majority. It became incorporated. And the problem with this is that from this point on, Christianity was inseparable from empire. You just couldn't pull the two apart. Christian leaders now were erecting temples and, and they were doing their own form of temple model with a little bit of Jesus added to it. And this was being called Christianity. These new Christian leaders with these new titles were the new sacred men. Uh, they started to collect all those relics and, and all those writings. They decided they better, they better deem which ones were authentic. And so they bring a council together. They end up canonizing what we call the Bible today. And they took it and they chained it to an altar. And it became the new sacred text. These sacred men with this new sacred text and these new sacred places were now the new church. We fast forward to the 4th century, and what we find out is that the church starts to have all kinds of problems. Uh, within the church, they start having some arguments, and one of them is called the Arian Controversy. And if you've never heard about this, it's all centered around the word begotten. You know John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the only begotten son. His only begotten son was an argument that they started to have with one another, and it was because some of them started questioning the translation of begotten. And the, the argument went something like this. Was, God, uh, was Jesus born God or did he become God? When he came and, you know, Christmas time, what we celebrate, was he already God or was it because later on in life God gave him that divinity? And there was a guy by the name of Arius who argued the point. He said, no, God sent him, but he wasn't really God until later on in life when he proved his worthiness. He, he lived a holy lifestyle. And then finally in that moment, God looked at him and deemed him worthy and, and bestowed upon him divinity. And it started a big rift within the church. Now, Constantine, being the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, didn't want division. He wasn't a theologian, but he was still the emperor. And so what he did is he, he put together a council and he called a hearing and they brought in all of these religious leaders. And for two months, they argued both sides of this. And Arius argued his sides with all of his followers called the Arians. And they argued and they lost. And in the end, they said, no, Jesus was in fact God when he was born. It wasn't bestowed upon him later on. After this hearing, do you think everyone left happy? And excited about the judgment? No, of course not. Like every debate, you end up with winners and losers. And it, it was so bitter, in fact, that Constantine decided he better issue an edict to make sure that this doesn't become a problem later. And I want to read you the last couple of lines of the edict because this really sets the tone for the church as we move forward. This is what he wrote. 
I, and I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be, say it with me, death. Now this is important and it's critical because now theological division was punishable by death. If you didn't agree with what the church said, if you didn't agree with their translation, their interpretation of the sacred text, they could put you to death. Now, it was more about what you believed than how you behaved. It was more about the law than it was about love. Are you seeing the temple model come back in? And let me ask you this. Is this what Jesus came for? No. And we're not that far removed from Jesus here, and we've already lost our way this far. See, from this point on, Christianity, Christianity becomes more creedal than anything. You have the Nicaea Creed, you have the, the Roman Creed, you have the Apostles' Creed, which many of you know because you've recited this maybe in your churches in the past. And there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, this is a great statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Those are good statements, but here's my point. It all came down to what you believe. There's nothing in these creeds that have anything to do with behavior. There's nothing in these creeds, listen to me, that have to do with the new command that Jesus gave us. To love each other as I've loved you. It's void of any love. And during this time, no one was ever arrested because they loved too much. They were only arrested based on what, what they believed in or what they didn't believe in. And many Christians killed other Christians. This is how far off base we got. And the problem with all of this is what it did is it made sacred men the gatekeepers of heaven and hell. It went back to men deciding who was getting in and who was out. How you got in and how you stayed out was decided by men, not by God any longer. And so much so that they went to the extent of even withholding communion from certain people. Augustine himself established this thing that said he denied you baptism for at least one year after you said you received Christ because he wasn't sure if you were actually saved or not. You had to go through all these classes and be indoctrinated by the church. And at the end of that year, if you could, and listen to me, tell the church what the church believed, not what you believed, then you could be baptized and saved. This is so far removed from what Jesus had intended. They started to implement this thing called excommunicated. They, they would excommunicate people. Like you could be cut off from your church family. You could be cut off even from your birth family because you didn't believe what the church believed. And then you fast forward to the 11th century. And I don't think I have to spend a lot of time in this, but this is like the darkest moment in all of Christian history. A group of knights told by the Pope that there is a sacred place in Jerusalem that we need to take back. Do you remember what God did in 70 AD with the Roman Empire? He wiped the temple off the face of the earth, but yet these men decided it's time to go back and rebuild the temple. And so he tells a group of soldiers, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past, it doesn't matter what you do from this point forward, if we can take that ground, you'll be forgiven of anything you've ever done. Why? Because God wills it. And under the banner of God wills it, this entire army cuts a swath right through Europe. Rape and pillage and theft, all in the name of Jesus Christ, with crosses on their shield. Why? Because God wills it. 
since this time, Christianity has always been about the temple model. All been about the temple model. Until about 1517. About 1517, we have something that happens. It's called the Protestant Reformation. It's led by a bunch of different guys like William uh, Tyndale, John Huss, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, and a lot of these, these great men of the faith who were part of the church. All right? they, didn't, they didn't want to destroy the church because they, they still saw the Jesus that was there. They just felt like everything else was wrong, kind of like what we're coming to uh, our, our realization over the last couple of weeks. Right? There's some wrong things in the church that we need to strip away and get it back to just Jesus. And that's what these men were all about. But it cost them their lives. I told you about uh, John Wycliffe last week. He died and they, you know, 45 years later, dug his bones up and burned his bones and threw him into the river because they said he was a heretic. Why? Because he said the, the authoritative, uh, the, the scriptures were authoritative over the Pope. Like, we need to know what the scriptures say. Don't let sacred men in sacred places tell us what it says. Let us read it for ourselves and we need to put it in, in the languages where the common people can read it. And he began to translate one into English. Uh, another guy by the name of John Huss was burned at the stake because he took the same stand. John, I'm sorry, Martin Luther would actually challenge the church on several different levels. He challenged the church on the path to salvation. He's like, nowhere in scripture do I say, see people coming to Jesus, faith in Jesus, the way the church says that they have to. He also challenged the, the selling of indulgences said, this is wrong. Just show it to me in Scripture, and they couldn't do it. He, he took the same stance uh, with the Scriptures. He also said that there's nothing in the Scriptures that he could see where a bishop or a priest could tell somebody that they had to go to purgatory and spend so much time there, and then if you gave so much money to the church, then you could get them out. He's like, just show me where it's at in the Gospels. It's nowhere to be found, and during this, this Reformation, and, and by the way, all these men were part of this Protestant Reformation. They were part of the church. They weren't trying to destroy the church. They were trying to reform the church. That's why it's called the Reformation. Also, they felt like they were insiders, but they were protesting, and so that's where we get the word Protestant from. So this is a protest reform is what it is. But Martin Luther actually uh, was talking about the, 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 the authority of Scripture, and there were some battle cries that came out of this whole period, this Reformation, uh, that, that still stick with us today. They're called solas. Uh, one of them is sola fide. And what they were saying is it's nothing, it's only faith. That's it. it doesn't, you're not saved by works. Works don't get you anything. It's sola fide. It's only about faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it is. The other one is sola scriptor, which is just only scripture. That's it. We don't need a pope. We don't need sacred men telling us what. Just give us the scriptures. And so much so that, that Martin Luther would write this. He would say, a simple layman armed with the scriptures greater than the mightiest pope without it. Um, it's interesting because they would actually go on to excommunicate Martin Luther. He, he would write the Bible out in German but they would excommunicate him. What I loved about Martin Luther is he just didn't care because he's like, you don't have the authority to excommunicate me anyway, so big deal. Big whoop. Go ahead. See, the problem with this is um, we would eventually translate the Bible into a lot of different languages, which is great. But unfortunately, what would happen is you would have sacred men in sacred places reading the scriptures in their own languages, and then what would happen is from this point on, the Bible has become for the Protestant church really what the papal authority was for the Catholic church. 
a weapon armed with the scriptures. And since then, the Bible's been used to beat people over the head century after century. You ever had scriptures used against you? You ever had it thrown in your face? It became a weapon. It was wielded against people and against other Christians. Uh, through this Reformation, they started to use it against one another, and the Reformation was, was splintered. It started to, to go in two different directions, and then eight, and then 50, and, and you cut forward all the way to today, and we have over a thousand denominations in the Protestant church today worldwide. Over a thousand. How do you do that? Did we split off because somebody loves differently than somebody else? No, it's because of interpretation, sometimes of one word. And we'd split off and start, and we'd just divide and start a new denomination. All of this has happened because we now have more sacred places, sacred texts, and sacred men telling people how to live their lives and what they must do and what they must not do. We've been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. And and the tragedy, I think, in all of this, if I think back to what Jesus was trying to get his church to understand, what he was trying to teach us, is that I believe that love lost out to law. We chose the temple model over the Jesus movement. Now, I don't know, I don't know what happened in heaven. I don't know with Jesus and the apostles watching all this go on for centuries. I don't know what was going on, but, but if I just imagine it just a bit, I kind of imagine Jesus and Paul standing at the edge of heaven and just watching and for the first 300 years going, bravo, look at this. They got it. They heard us. And then since 300 and on, they've got to be shaking their head. You know, I imagine Jesus just standing there with Paul going, what are they doing? Like, why are they doing that? How, how did they miss it? Like, like, Paul, I actually got down on my hands and feet and washed their stinking feet. Like, I, I showed them how to do it. I even gathered them all up before I left, and I told them this. I said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Like, how did they miss that? It's so simple. And I imagine Paul standing there going, Jesus, not to one-up you, but I wrote mine down for him. Like, and I even made copies, and we sent it out so everyone would be very clear. And this is what I wrote. I, I said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts. How did they miss it? I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? And then you know Peter, the way he is, he had to interject himself into the conversation, and Peter's like, nah, you know what, guys, I hate to bring this up, but have you seen what they've done to my tomb? Really? St. Peter's Basilica? I mean, this is, they built a temple on my stinking tomb. After I wrote this, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Like, how did they miss it? How did they get so far off base? Do you know how? 
Because temple model thinking is in all of us. It's in all of us. Uh, our, our consciences have been shaped by it. it. It drives our behaviors. It's how we view God, how we view sin and everything else. And this temple model thinking is so ingrained in us that we can't seem to get away from it. We have trouble even seeing Jesus through it. It's, it's messed up our way. It, it's taken us off track so far that we're having trouble finding our way back. Now, I know some of you right now are like, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. Like, I really don't have any temple model thinking in me. I don't care if you're churched or not. If you never came to church a day in your life and this is your first day, you have temple model thinking in you. And if you don't believe me, let me just end by asking you a couple of questions to check it, okay? These might hit a little close to home. You ready? Here's the first question. Have you ever wondered... How close can I get without actually sinning? I mean, this is the question as pastors we get all the time, and we, we don't even respond to this question because we're like, you're asking the wrong question. This is temple model thinking. Do you know why? Because you're more concerned about getting close to sin than you are getting close to God. That's temple model thinking. Uh, what about this question? Have you ever felt guiltier about missing church than the way that you treated someone? You could mistreat somebody on the way to church. And then walk in with a smile on your face and straighten up your tie and act like everything's great. And you're more concerned about missing church than the way you treated somebody at work this last week. That's temple model thinking. This next one is kind of tough because it, if you've ever really messed up in life, like you really, you jacked some things up, you committed adultery, had a massive moral failure, maybe worse, abuse, okay? You just figured it out on your own. But my question would be this. Were you more concerned about what God would do to you than what you did to the other person? See, people that have temple model thinking are more concerned about themselves than they are anyone else. It's temple model thinking. What about this one? Do you think that there's a ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution with somebody you've hurt or sinned against? Man, I hear this one a lot. What do I need to do to make myself right? That's all I care about is just myself. I want to be right with God. I know I hurt all these other people, but if I'm right with God, I don't have to worry about any of that. That's temple model thinking. Because Jesus thinking says, what would love require of me? It would say that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does love require of me? What about this one? Do other people's sins elicit feelings of superiority in you? You hear about somebody else who's sinning and you're like, at least I'm not like them. Does it make you feel better when you hear about other people sinning? Because it should break your heart. It should wreck you. That's temple model thinking. Let me just end with this one. This one's hard. Do your beliefs or theology ever get in the way of you loving someone? Have you ever struggled in loving somebody because you're taking a theological stand? Jesus said, love each other the way I've loved you. He didn't say unless they believe something differently than you. It's temple model thinking. Now, just for a minute, imagine, just imagine if we were free from that. 
If we didn't have to worry about the temple model, if we could just focus on what Jesus was calling us to do, imagine what could happen in our families, in our communities, at our works, if we really just started to live our lives the way God wants us to. Imagine if everybody in here, just in Mountain View Fellowship, if we got up every morning and got out of bed and we knew in that moment that this, this thing, this vertical thing was right, like God is okay with us. He loves us. I get that. I, okay, I can just move forward. So now all I have to focus on is how do I express my faith and love to the world around me? How do I do that? Could you imagine what could happen? Your family would never be the same. Your workplace would change overnight. I want to see that happen. In my lifetime, I want to see that happen. Because I believe that God is looking for a group of people that will actually partner with him in that. That will actually live this out the way that he called us to live it out. My question is this. Do you believe that? Do you want to see that? And will you do it? Let me pray for us that we'll have the strength to do that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as messed up people. We struggle in, in our thinking. We struggle in overcoming this temple model, Lord. We, we ask right now that you would just do something mighty in our hearts. Change us from the inside out. God, help us to overcome these tendencies, to always go back to the, the old ways. Help us to put the focus where it should be, to major on the major and minor on the minors. God, in this, I just ask that you would open the doors this week for us to be able to express our faith and love. Open our eyes to ways that we can do that. And God, I pray that in all these things that your name is, made, is being made big in our families, in our communities, in our jobs. God, I just pray that everything that we do this week flows out of our love for you and your love for us. We pray this brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless.